You're listening to Fundraising Radio, a podcast about fundraising for early stage startups. The major rule that we follow here is no bullshit on this podcast. No music to relax you, no advertisements of our sponsors. We only talk about fundraising here and nothing else. So let's jump into the episode. And today's a guest speaker. We have John Helm, Manager, Director at Real Estate Technology Ventures. And in this episode, we'll talk about real estate, investing in prop tech, and specifically how real estate technology ventures invest because they focus on a very specific niche of prop tech. And also, we're going to touch on to the changes that happened in the past 20 years because John has worked in this field for over 20 years. And also, John built two of his own companies and sold both of them. So we're going to talk about that as well. So John, let's kick it off by you giving us some background on yourself and on real estate technology ventures. Yeah, sure. So uh, hello, everyone. Thanks for having me. Uh, I would, uh, I guess, get started by saying I've been in this business a very long time. (laughs) Uh, Let's see. I I became a, a real estate tech entrepreneur almost by accident. Uh, I was CFO of a uh, commercial real estate brokerage company called Marcus Millichap back in 96. And um, they had hired me after I'd been at McKinsey for about six years. And it just so happened that that was um, in the middle of the dot-com, the first dot-com boom in the late 90s. Our corporate office was in Palo Alto, and we saw the... um, all these businesses going online, and if and if everyone remembers, the first businesses to go online back then were uh, classifieds, right? Uh, makes sense, right? To put a relational database of jobs or homes or, or cars or, in our case, apartments online. Uh, and we saw that happening and thought that we could do that too, given that we, we knew who all the owners of the apartment buildings were and, and actually worked with many of them. So... Uh, we actually launched one of the first department ILSs at Marcus and Millichap, spun it out a year later. Uh, it was backed by um, Kleiner Perkins, and ever since then, I've been in real estate tech. So, yeah, I guess about 25 years now. Nice. Um, I did uh, I did two venture-backed startups. Uh, the first one, as I mentioned, we spun out of Marcus and Millichap, and then the second one uh, I did – that was purely venture back, started started up from scratch in about 2005, sold that in 2011. And then I think mm-hmm. like many VCs, switched from being a player to a coach and made the transition over to venture capital, uh, initially in Europe of all places uh, for four years. After I sold my second company, I moved to Germany and lived in Munich and worked as a venture partner for a a very active early stage fund in London called DN Capital, and uh, did about 13 deals with them. And then nice. when I was moving back to the U.S., I um, started looking at uh, opportunities. This would have been 2016, uh, and I had always had in the back of my mind launching a um, a real estate tech really a rent tech oriented fund, given my background in the industry, having done two startups in the industry. Mm-hmm. And I'd seen firsthand the uh, value of having strategic investors involved in the company. My second company, I actually had two large multifamily REITs, Essex and UDR, and two very large private 
uh, apartment owners, uh, ConAm and the Lane Company. And I saw firsthand the value of having those guys on my cap table and involved in my business. Quite honestly, I also saw some of the negatives, right? When you're, when you're discussing margins and pricing and how much money you're making off your customers in your boardroom and, and your customers sitting right there, uh, you know, sometimes it's, the conversation can be a little awkward. So, so uh, and I always thought the best way to, um, to handle that was to uh, have a venture capital fund that was backed by all of the customers, but with the fund acting as kind of a, a honest broker slash, you know, intermediary between the customers and the entrepreneurs. <coughs> and I had, a, uh, I had a meeting of minds with uh, the CEOs of, of my, you know, two of my investors, uh, the CEO of Essex and the CEO of, of UDR. Uh, and that's how we got real estate technology ventures off the ground. Yes, sorry well, for there. extensive while. coughing there. I thought I muted myself and apparently I missed the button. So yes, <laughs> I did not have COVID by the way. Um, great background, absolutely love it. Super rich, super fun story of getting into this. And the most important part, over 20 years in the field. That's super interesting. And we're definitely going to get back to this uh, in just a few questions. But first question is going to be, you know, you've managed to sell both of the companies that you've started, mainly like 100% success rate. What do you think allowed you to get to that, you know, such a great success rate there? <laughs> well, luck always plays a huge, um, a huge factor. Uh, luck and timing are, I think, uh, both underestimated by people. Uh, but I, it, I guess, um, you know, it's uh, at the end of the day, you know, especially I think in real estate, real estate technology, uh, businesses come down to execution. Uh, the, you know, the technology that's being deployed often in, in real estate tech has been deployed in other industries. It's, um, it's been out there a while. So I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't say I came up with this brilliant idea that no one else had and was able to patent it and, and build a big business around it. It was actually more a function of, okay, I, we, you know, I saw in, in my first company um, with uh, my co-founder, you know, we saw an opportunity. We saw how other people were doing it. We thought we could, we could do it better. And we, you know, just started building a business. Uh, and, and in this industry, I think building up a customer base and knowing how to sell into the industry and driving uh, penetration of that customer base is, is really the key skill, at least in mm -hmm. multifamily. 100%, yeah. Completely agree with you. Luck and timing, that's honestly the two major components of pretty much every single startup founder who managed to sell their business. So yeah, 100% agree. And agreeing on the idea process as well. You know, whenever you think of some idea, you're like, oh, should I patent this idea? And most likely, I mean, come on, this idea already existed. So like four other people came up with it. So just go for it. Execution is the key pretty much every single time in every field, not just prop tech. So yeah, 100% agreed here. Um, so let's talk about, you know, being the first time entrepreneur, especially in the earlier days when there was no YC, no uh, information out there, no podcast like fundraising radio where you had to go 
through the complete darkness. Can you tell us a little bit more about that experience? You know, how did it feel to be the first time entrepreneur in the dot-com bubble, basically? Yeah, well, we, you know, we had it in some ways uh, better than a lot of the early entrepreneurs, right? We were a corporate spin-out. So, you know, I was CFO of a, a large private company um, and was able to collect my paycheck and my salary while incubating this, this business internally. Uh, we, um, we actually hired another individual to, to be president. And then when we spun it out, I stepped down to be the full-time CEO. So for me, it was, it was pretty seamless. Now, the, the, you know, the, the adverse side of that is, of course, since it was a corporate spin out, I didn't own the company uh, or even, you know, a significant chunk of the company, uh, like, like, you know, entrepreneurs that at the time were quite literally working out of their garages and running up their, their credit card bills uh, and, and working for no pay. Um, so I had that, that going for me, and it was, a, it was kind of an easy way to ease into being an entrepreneur uh, because I had the whole support network of a, a large company behind me for really the first year that we were doing it. So I'm probably not your best example of, you know, <laughs> the early stage guys that were starting companies during the, the initial days of the dot-com bubble. I certainly saw it all around me, uh -huh. right? And um, those, those guys were the real pioneers. That's for sure. That's for sure. And I mean, a lot of them had great successes. So props to them for going through all these hardships uh, to get to eventual success. Um, how about the second time you started a company? What do you think was the major mistake there? So, you know, looking back at that story, you know, nearly 20 years ago, what do you think were the, let's say, three major mistakes that you've made there while starting your own company? Yeah, I mean, I, I can give you the, that across both companies, right? I mean, when, when we spun out, we were still very small. It was the dot-com bubble things, you know, so things were measured in dog ears, it seems, back then. Uh, but yeah, you know, I think, <laughs> I think what since this is, since the title of this is fundraising radio, I'll yeah I'll speak to fundraising right. You can make a lot of mistakes in fundraising, uh, so I'll 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 pull up the a few of the many mistakes I made in fundraising because I think that's the most relevant. Uh, the first would be you know everybody, um, and and I did this as well right. You get so excited when you're when you're out trying to raise money the first time that the the first good term sheet you get uh, from a you know a, a good name VC you jump on it and you're off to the races and I've seen this both you know as an entrepreneur and, and now as a VC that you know a lot of entrepreneurs don't do a lot of diligence on the people that are investing in their company. You know, when, when we make an investment, we, we do a ton of reference checking and diligence on the CEO. But I can't tell you how many CEOs just go for the highest offer, grab the term sheet, and go. And, you know, the, the, the initial investors that you bring into your business can really shape the direction of your company and have a huge impact on how you run the company and then ultimately, you know, how things work out for you. So... You know, I would say one of the, the one of the biggest lessons I learned, and I applied it from my first company to my second company, was trying to make sure that I got a group of like-minded investors in my boardroom that I could work with. And you know, for example, in my uh, second company, 
my A, A round was led by Trinity Ventures, and there's a partner there named Noel Fenton, who, uh, God, he's been there, I think he started the firm maybe 40 years ago, mm -hmm. 35 oh, years nice. ago. Uh, and, and that was after he had taken a company public, right? So he, um, he's very, you know, he was very experienced, but more importantly, he, I knew he was somebody I could work with, somebody that I could, I could use as a, a mentor. And that kind of goes with the second mistake, right? You got to remember at the end of the day that the, the guy's giving you money, they'll, yeah, they'll all say that they're, uh, they're there for you and you can talk to them about anything. And, uh, but at the end of the day, you gotta remember they're still your investors. And so you may not wanna talk to them about everything. Uh, yep. And, um, but having guys that at least you're, you're comfortable with and know that have your back and uh, can work with you, especially when times aren't going well, is, is really important. And so real, I, I guess that that's all wrapped up in a lesson of, do the diligence on the people giving you money. Uh, if you are in the position that you've got multiple parties looking to back you, and I know everyone often isn't in that situation, really, you know, don't don't place valuation at the top of the stack. Uh, place at the top of the list, who do you think you can work with? Because that's gonna matter much more in the long run. And I've sacrificed valuation to work with the right person. Nice. So that was not the mistake you've made. Are there any like particular mistakes, you know, like looking back at it with all the experience that you gained recently with the experience of a VC that you are right now, looking back at something you've done there, you're like, oh, geez, that's, that's just really bad. Anything like that. Yeah. Well, and I'm sure other speakers have talked to this, right? It, especially in an early company, right? People and culture is just critical. And yeah, there's the old adage, quick to fire and slow to hire, right? Uh, or slow to hire, quick to fire. Every mm -hmm. time, and I've learned this the hard way, right? Every time I've, I've had somebody on my team that kind of just didn't sit right with me, right? And I, and I thought, ah, this, this just really isn't working. This person isn't working out. And I've been, Early on, I've invested a lot of effort, you know, early in my career, well, I gotta make them work. I gotta invest effort and time in them. Uh, as, as I became more experienced, I realized that you just gotta move on, right? It's, it's one of the hard, I think it's one of the hardest lessons to learn as an entrepreneur is sometimes you, you, you actually make a mistake in hiring somebody and you're doing yourself a favor and them a favor by just um, ending that relationship and moving on. And often when you do it, the whole organization around you breathes a sigh of relief and, and says, oh my God, about time he figured this one out. You know, I'm so glad that person is no longer here. So I, I would, you know, what I would say is um, when it comes to people, you really gotta be disciplined about if, if things aren't moving out, cut the cord and move on more quickly, I think than a lot of people are are really, willing to do right yeah i'm i'm imagining that firing people is super hard uh, i've gone through the process a few times myself and it's horrible absolutely horrible you're like okay well i've hired this person myself i was the one choosing them you know and now i have to say that the, the, they're not actually as great as i thought it's tough it's tough but yeah usually when you you know fire them then there is the relief in the whole team and they're like 
so yeah, totally agree yeah. with you here. Usually um, you're the last one to know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. That's the true. whole team is is wondering when it's going to happen, and you're the <laughs> la- you know you're usually the last person. Yep, yep, that's true as well. Um, yeah, hundred percent agree on that topic. Uh, absolutely. So yeah, now let's talk about the massive experience that you had in the startup world. So you've been working there for over twenty years, nearly twenty five years, as you said. What is the major change that you see in the startup world that took over that took place in this you know, uh, time period? Well, I think you hit on it earlier. Uh, I would say that the biggest change is infrastructure, uh, and and I would, you know, I would um, categorize that in multiple dimensions, right? Uh, back in you know the first dot com bubble when things were just getting going, you know, the the whole venture capital ecosystem was certainly there. Um, but it wasn't nearly as robust as it is today. And technology was very different. I mean, I, it, I don't think people realize just how easy it is today to get to an MVP and stand up a business, right? It, you can, for, for one, there's, there's a ton of open source, you know, software and, and code out there for people to leverage. Um, and, Number two, a huge thing that people really don't think about is cloud computing, right? I mean, we've got Amazon Web Services now. When we did our first company, we were buying sunboxes for you know two hundred and fifty thousand dollars a pop, and we had to rent a cage down in a you know a um, data center, and my my poor head of technology was down there at you know three in the morning hooking up boxes because you didn't want to bring your, your website down in the middle of the day to do any of that. Right. So, and, and so the amount of money we spent on, on just the technology infrastructure back then, which was millions of dollars to, to, just to get a company up and running and launched, you just don't have to spend that money anymore. Right. Mm-hmm. You just yeah. open up an account on Amazon web services and you're off to the races. So, you know, when I look at my first company, we had, you know, we had our tech team, and a big part of our tech team was the ops side, the guys running the physical infrastructure. Well, companies just don't even have that anymore, right? You don't need that. You mm-hmm. need one guy uh, and, and a help desk, right, <laughs> to, to keep Outlook or, or, you know, Microsoft Office running or whatever you've got it going. But, but back then, right, we had to maintain our entire infrastructure. You know, we were writing stuff basically from scratch in and, and Java and, um and so that's probably the single biggest change from a technology perspective. And so what that's done up from a venture capital perspective is it's moved all the rounds forward, right? Um, you know, a company used to have to raise millions of dollars just to get off the ground. Now you can do that with a few hundred thousand dollars in angel money. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 100%. I mean, there are so many no-code tools that... Even I, the person who absolutely who's not great with tech, who has no idea how coding works, even I can do an MVP basically, and I've, I've actually done one myself. So yes, uh, people, if you're not familiar with the no code tech, definitely Google no code tools. Uh, there is the one that's just super simple. I think it's called Bubble. Yeah, Bubble. Bubble definitely. That's the one. Uh, so yeah, check it out if you need an MVP. Just check it out on Bubble. I'm pretty sure you're going to be able to build it yourself. 
and not have to you know spend millions and millions of dollars uh like john had to do in the day in uh, in the old days so check it out um hopefully you're not going to spend so much money on the mvp because that's unnecessary in 2021 so now let's move on to the current days john you are working in a fund real estate technology ventures and i believe in our pre-interview you mentioned that you're investing in a very very specific niche in prop tech can you tell us a little bit more about that yeah, sure. So we are uh, focused on what we call rent tech, which is the technology used to run a, a rental real estate portfolio. And it's, yeah, within real estate, right, everybody usually breaks real estate up into two primary asset classes, residential, i.e., you know, for sale homes, and then commercial, which is, you know, office industrial and, and multifamily is been traditionally lumped in with commercial, but multifamily really is its own unique asset class. It's quite large, roughly a third of the U.S. population lives in some form of a, a rental property, whether it's a large apartment building, a small duplex, or a single family home, roughly over, or over 40 million households. And within that group, uh, there's on the apartment side, you know, call it 26, 28 million, depending upon how you define it, apartments in the U.S. And then within that chunk, you've got um, roughly a little over half of that is what we would call the the institutional market or the you know the large, you know, two, three, four hundred unit properties that everybody sees that are owned largely by institutional investors. And you know, that's a it's a big market. It's it's increasingly sophisticated. And uh, when you're running a big three, 400 unit apartment building, there's quite a bit of technology increasingly being leveraged to run that building very efficiently. And so we're investing in technology that uh, effectively enables the, you know, the more uh, efficient operation of those properties. And increasingly, and I'm sure, you know, You've seen this, right? The single-family rental space, renting homes, is also becoming institutionalized and leveraging technology much more than in the past. So you now have companies like Invitation Homes, uh, who's an LP in our fund. Uh, they're, they're managing over 90,000 single-family homes spread across the U.S. Nice. And to, to do that, they really have to leverage uh, technology, and so we're investing in and technology that helps them as well. And a lot of the technologies use the same, whether it's a, a big apartment building or a distributed uh, group of single family homes. And so mm -hmm. our fund is, I think, relatively unique, even among uh, what, you know, what people call prop tech funds. Mm -hmm. And by that, I mean, we're, you know, all the other prop tech funds are focused on real estate in general. So they might invest in technology for office buildings or industrial properties or retail malls uh, or single, you know, home sales, right? Title companies, things like that. And also uh, technology for apartment buildings. And they might have a handful of limited partners spread across all those asset classes. Uh, our fund has over 40 limited partners across our funds one and two that own and operate over 2 million uh, apartment units in the U.S. And all, our entire LP group is comprised of owner-operator managers of some kind of rental property. So we we like to think that we've got a much closer pulse on, on that market and can obviously help the companies we invest in 
to a much greater degree, given that you know we've got basically a, a predefined group of potential customers in our fund that mm -hmm. represents maybe one sixth, one seventh of the entire institutionally owned market in the U.S. This is insane, and this is absolutely great. And this is exactly why I like niche focus so much. And by the way, I just spoke with a company that uh, uh, maybe you've heard of them, Rent Check. Did you? Rent check? No, yeah. we haven't come across them yet. All right, I'll follow up with you after the call. Uh, so uh, you, you definitely, you absolutely have to take a look at them. I think you're going to love them. Absolutely great fit there. Anyhow, now that we've covered that, let's talk just a little bit more about PropTech. And specifically, uh, what do you think is the major trend that's going on in PropTech industry? I've interviewed quite a few investors in this field, but never asked them this question. So what do you think is the major thing that's coming up in PropTech? Well, we think about the industry in, in themes, right? And I'll, I'll restrict my my uh, my answers to uh, what we call rent tech, right? Since that's that's where we're specialized and that's what we're focused on. And I would say one of the um, one of the things right now that we're aggressively pursuing uh, is this concept of um, self leasing or self service leasing, right? Renting an apartment in the U.S. is still a very time-consuming, difficult, often laborious process, both for the renter and for the, for the property owner. Um, you can't just go online and, and rent an apartment like, for example, you can book a hotel room or increasingly, you know, buy a car, it seems. Um, and we've been investing in a series of companies that when integrated, uh, when the technologies are integrated, allow you to rent an apartment uh, without ever having to kind of go in to an office and and deal with people and, and do lots of paperwork. And especially in this COVID environment, right, that's been a, a, a huge plus. And the companies that were fairly far down this path when COVID hit were able to keep up um, leasing velocity and, and keep their buildings uh, rented, even though they had to close their leasing offices and they couldn't they couldn't meet tenants face to face in the in the property. So specifically, you know, what am I talking about? I'm talking about uh, advanced CRM products that leverage, you know, perhaps chatbots and ways to communicate with a, um, you know, AI and chatbots, you know, a way to communicate with the renter uh, when there's a human not involved uh, that allow the, the property to, to track that renter and then engage with that prospective renter and get them to the point where they're ready to take a tour of the property. And then when you get them to that point, uh, if you're not meeting them on site and there's no one there to, to check them and check their ID, obviously you wanna make sure you're letting somebody onto your property uh, where you know who they are. So for example, we invested in another company called Checkpoint ID that validates the person's driver's license and they can do that in person or online, and when they do it online, the person takes a, a photo of themselves, a selfie, and then also the front and back of their driver's license, and they can, with mm -hmm. facial recognition software, make sure it's, you know, that person's who they say they are, and then ping the databases to make sure that's a valid ID. Once you've verified who it is, uh, the person then needs to show up to tour the property, and that's where another company we invested in called Smart Rent comes in, and they have a, a full smart apartment kind of IOT package, which includes most importantly access control at the front of the building, and then also in the units. 
And uh, the, the, the systems are now so sophisticated, it's really cool. They actually have an intercom panel where the, the person can walk up and the camera can read their face. And, and you know, the system that says, aha, this is the person whose ID we just validated. Mm -hmm. you know, it's the same face. They're here for their four o'clock tour because the, the CRM software told us they were coming. And I'm going to give them access to the building, but then only give them access to these three units. And I'm only going to allow the elevator to stop on those floors where the units nice. are. And, and then that, you know, allows the prospect to tour the property on their own. Uh, uh -huh. The system reports back, well, maybe the person spent 10 minutes in Unit 102, but only spent two minutes in, in 301, right? So they, they can get some information on where the person was in the building, what they did. And mm -hmm. then, um, and that, uh, that access is only allowed when they've got their tour scheduled. So it's very secure. And, and interestingly, uh, we have actually seen in some cases, like in single family, where this technology was really pioneered because if you're, you know, if you're managing a couple thousand homes around Phoenix, Arizona, it's logistically very difficult and, and, and expensive oh, yeah. to send a leasing agent out to meet people, right? So you, mm -hmm. the, the single family guys like invitation homes had to do this out of necessity. And the single family guys have found that the close rates are actually higher when there's not a, a leasing person present, right? Because people, and I don't know about you, but whenever I buy a house, I don't want the realtor following me around the house, right? Oh, I yeah. want to explore on my own time and my own pace. And renters are the same way. And so uh, that technology enables that. So it's, it's, it's a better experience for the prospect and the, the building owner saving time and money, right? They don't have to have a person meet that person. And during COVID, they couldn't do that. And then finally, mm -hmm. when the person is ready to sign a lease, we've got another portfolio company called uh, Funnel, <laughs> that has all the online leasing capability, sales funnel, right? CRM software makes sense. And uh -huh. they can get that lease executed completely online. Nice. I love how you covered the entire process. And yes, I mean, I'm Gen Z. I do not like to interact with people when it's not necessary. So yeah, I'm 100% buying into that idea. Love it. Absolutely love it. So now that we covered all of that, the trends as well and what you guys specifically are investing in moving on to the very last question of today's episode so call to action john what do you want the listener to do as soon as the episode is over i'm sorry say that again oh call to action what do you want the listener to do oh. as soon as the episode is over <laughs> well, for all those would-be, uh, you know, entrepreneurs, if you're if you're starting a business uh, that touches our industry, we'd be happy to talk to you. Uh, you know, we're, we um, we will talk to anyone that's got a company that's in our space, right? That's one of the beauties mm -hmm. of, of having a, a focused, specialized fund is, is we're happy to talk to everybody, even if it's not at a stage uh, where we would invest. We're primarily a, what we call seed plus and A-round investor. So, we like to invest in companies that have a product out in the market and is producing revenues and has customers. Typically, we, we like to see at least about um, 50 to 100,000 in MRR or you know, monthly revenues. And companies at that stage, we think are at the perfect point where we have something that we can show our limited partners, right, who are mm -hmm. the potential customers, get their feedback, find out if it's something they think you know, they would be interested in deploying within their portfolios. And obviously, if we get positive feedback, that's, that's great uh, due diligence for us and makes it much more likely we're going to make an investment.
Nice. I love it. Great call to action. I'll make sure to leave links to both LinkedIn of John and also to the website of Real Estate Technology Ventures. So people, if you're in PropTech, definitely check it out. Uh, look at their website. Uh, I'm pretty sure there is a bunch of content information there. So check it out. And also I'll leave a link to another episode on PropTech. So if you want to learn more about PropTech, if you want to hear another episode on that, definitely check out the description of this episode. And as usually, have a good day.